0: On June 11, 1967, a CH-46 transport helicopter, call sign Bonnie Sue, with a four-man crew from the HMM 265th Marine Air Group, went down while inserting a seven-man recon team, call sign Somersail 1, from 3rd Force Reconnaissance Company into their zone of operation south of the DMZ and west of Kantian. All aboard were killed and their bodies never recovered. The accounts, recollections, and memories of this incident have crisscrossed thousands of miles, a lot of years, and affected many people. This is an American story, told in a common language of how some of those affected have tried to find understanding, acceptance, and closure. That
1: was David Moraney introducing his film Flashback, Summer Sale 1 Revisited, which is clearly not a vacation video. David's a filmmaker who refers to himself as a storyteller. He's also a Vietnam War veteran. This is a story about how these puzzle pieces come together in a long and complex journey of healing and reconciliation. However you define it, given the human predilection for disruption and conflict, Reconciliation has always played an important role in the story of humans making peace and moving on. 26 years ago, the word became a headline when the newly reconstituted state of South Africa established a Truth and Reconciliation Commission to help heal the country by uncovering the truth about human rights violations during apartheid. During my time in South Africa researching the book Art and Upheaval, I spoke to many South Africans about the TRC. The only consensus I could discern was that it was an awful necessity. One friend likened it to trying to close a horrible infected wound with an office stapler. She said, in the end, the lesion was closed, but the scar was then and for many still is impossible to look at. Given our genocidal white supremacist creation story, America has always struggled in its efforts to reconcile its history with its stated ideals. Our fractious civic landscape is a continuous reminder that these kinds of stories just can't be buried. Another of America's great reconciliation challenges came in the wake of the Vietnam War. Unlike South Africa, there was no national attempt to come to terms with that 20-year conflict. The fact that a war that laid waste to a small Asian country and killed 3.4 million people was never declared made it a particularly hard wound to close. For returning soldiers, this lack of recognition and the outright derision they often suffered compounded the devastating impact of their war experience. It's not surprising, then, that since the war's end, some of these men and women have made their way back to Southeast Asia to try and make their own peace with history. Many with questions about what took place on the battlefield and in some cases, what became of their fellow soldiers. David Morani spent decades harboring these kinds of questions. In 2001, he too made his way back to Vietnam seeking answers. As he recounts his 30-year journey of reconciliation, we'll also hear from fellow veterans and family members of fallen comrades who shared their stories in the film. We apologize for the uneven quality of some audio. This is Change the Story, Change the World. My name is Bill Cleveland. Part 1. Summer Sale 1. Like many young black men coming of age in the 1960s, David Morgani was looking for a future. Growing up in the Bronx at the time, the options were not great. School was not cutting it for him, and though he knew better, what was going on in the street seemed much more interesting. Luckily, as a young teen, he also discovered a, the talent for dribbling, passing, and putting the ball in the net. He also learned that if he paid attention and pushed himself... He could up his game. It's a lesson that served him well on the unconventional path his life took after he decided that school was a waste of time. That impulsiveness and a recognition that street life was no life led him to leave the city to live with relatives in South Carolina prior to spending 10 weeks at a well-known military boot camp at Paris Island, South Carolina, courtesy of the United States Marines. Starting in 1965, most of the young men leaving boot camp in a Marine uniform quickly found themselves in Vietnam. At the time, the U.S. presence in that tiny country was dramatically increasing from 23,000 troops at the start of 1965 to 536,000 troops 36 months later. After added training in California, David shipped off to Vietnam in April 1967— His unit, the 3rd Force Reconnaissance Company, went to Phu Bai and then on to the Dong Ha Combat Base some 600 kilometers north of Saigon. In war, time is slow, and if you manage to survive, learning is fast. In Vietnam, David learned that staying alive had everything to do with being alert, aggressive, mission-focused, and staying lucky. Unfortunately, in the summer of 1967, Luck was not with the recon team known as Somersail 1.
0: June 11, 67, we're in Vietnam, and my good friend and teammate, Dennis Christie, had been taken out of our team, and he was put into another team because they were reforming a team that had been somewhat depleted by wounded, injuries, death, and rotation. And this is the first time that he'd gone out without me and I'd gone out without him. And I was the point in our original team and he was my M seventy nine. He's the guy who walked behind me. So both of our teams are out at the same time and over the TAP net we hear that his insertion helicopter that his team was riding on got shot down.
1: Hank Trimble and Dave Batchich, who were pilots of the two Huey gunships escorting the mission CH-46 transport
2: helicopters into the landing zone, describe what they saw. We went up toward uh, our, uh, the zone where the incident finally occurred. I made a firing run with my machine gun and came back up and called Dick in. And We went in like this, me uh, in this position, and his wingman back over here, and he went in. At about three to five hundred feet somewhere, uh, his helicopter nose started to pitch up. It pitched up about three times, up to about 30 to 45 degrees, uh, and then fell on its back, twisted, split, as we call it in aviation.
1: I saw the, the, the aft rotor separate from the aircraft and go down and to the right of the aircraft and then the aircraft pitched up with the front rotor pulling it straight up.
2: As much as anything, more than anything in my life, was that as he got to this position, he keyed his mic, which is right on your stick. You squeeze it. And he started to cry for about four seconds I like guess. And he said, mama, mama. And then he was, he was gone.
1: When news of the crash got back to David's unit, their focus shifted immediately from enemy recon to locating and finding out what happened to the Somersail 1 team.
0: So we monitored the situation while we are still doing what we needed to do. And I just I had this... I knew it was dead. So there were all kinds of scenarios that were being floated because nobody could get to the choppers that possibly people jumped when they got closer to the ground and... The canopy kept them from being killed or the chopper hit something and guys were thrown out of it. You know, very unlikely. We sent in a reactionary force, the grunt sent in a reactionary force, but where they were going in, that zone was in the middle of the deep and everybody who tried to get in there got blown up and trying to get to the site and it was never accessed. So the closest they got were where they could look at the area which is brush, jungle, and all of that shit, through binoculars. Nothing. Not on. So these bodies were never recover.
1: As I've shared, Summer Sale 1 is about more than the tragic death of 11 Marines in the grass-covered hills of Quang Tri Province in the former South Vietnam. It's also about the long tale of grief and unanswered questions that followed from that tragedy for the families left behind a painful journey that began with the kind of news that every military family dreads. My mother was home alone when she got the initial
3: news. And my dad was out of state on a hunting trip. And it was her uh, 25th wedding anniversary. And uh, when my dad called to uh, to wish her a happy anniversary, that's when he found out. They were to, uh, told initially that that the aircraft had gone down and Uh, They were listed
1: initially as uh, Missing in Action, MIA. That was Craig Christie, David's lost buddy Dennis Christie's younger brother. Around the same time, Don Havernack, who was just 15, and his mother Arlene received the same ambiguously disturbing news about his brother Michael's fate on Summer Sale 1.
4: And my brother Bill, we were down in Moody's Café in Lynch, Nebraska, our cousins playing pinball or some darn thing. One of our cousins come in and said, get yourself up to your grandma's house you know, and she just block up or so on. There was my uncle Delbert and my father, they told me Mike has been shot down and he's MIA and he's just, they don't know what happened yet. We didn't really, No, well, he's all right. My mother was writing letters to everyone. Where's my son?
5: And then one Sunday, some dressed-up Marines, I saw him coming down from the car to the sidewalk to the house. And I just thought, oh, no. Ray went to the door, my husband did, and... I just knew that they said, your son is, I don't know, how did they say that? KIA now, I guess we would call it.
4: Oh, then all of a sudden we got a deal, well, he's KIA, well, where's where's his body? And we got no response. We were just lost, It's like Michael was. We were, (laughs) we've been lost. I think, I really feel my family's been lost.
1: Back in Quantry Province, David is having similar feelings of grief and dislocation.
0: So by the end of the day, I'm feeling really shitty. I'm just morose, I'm angry, a lot of different emotions. So I promised myself that I wasn't going to get killed there. I was going to make it home. And when I got home, I was going to find his family. And tell them what a wonderful cat this dude was. And that was my promise. So that was June 11th. I came home June 68, and the world is different. King is dead. Kennedy is dead. Everything's ablaze. Just, it was horrific in its own way, but not surprising. And I'm angry at everything and everybody. And I wanted to get out of the Marine Corps, but I still had almost two years left to do.
1: When he does leave the Marines in 1970, one of David's first impulses is to fulfill his commitment to himself and his buddy Dennis's family to bring some kind of closure. But it's a struggle that lays bare his reluctance to revisit and re-examine his own war story.
0: When I finally got out, I knew where his family lived, and I thought about finding A way to get down there and talk about it, but there was too many other things going on in my life, and I just wasn't certain about how I was going to approach this. So, a couple of years go forward, 1972 or three, I'm in San Diego. His family lives in Imperial Beach, just down the street from San Diego, and I'm crafting all these things in my mind. Pick up the phone, divorce, blah blah blah, and just never could get it done. It was painful. Very painful. I didn't want to have anything to do with the military. I was glad to be at school. I was a single parent. You know, I was doing all of that. And it came up intermittently. And each time it came up, I found a way to discourage myself from doing it.
1: Part two, moving pictures.
0: So, Uh, I had these cameras that I I bought for my mother and my aunt from my time in Vietnam, and I wanted to really develop my skills in using them. These were single reflex cameras, and they were pretty sophisticated. I was really excited. I was in a new place in San Diego. It was just great. So I had a lot that I could document and tell stories about in my own way. So the trick was to learn quickly, but... I didn't have a lot of money, and in the old days, you shot everything, and then you sent it to photo Photomat. And I met a guy who said, you could buy a video camera, and you could shoot something and see it that same day. And I said, no, nah, you're kidding me. He says, no. So I checked out the uh, video programs at my school, and that's how I really got into it. So I'm an anthropologist, as was my field of study, So I thought about being a film ethnographer because that would be the perfect job, traveling around the world, documenting how people lived, and that's what I was going to do. True to form,
1: as David's life is coming together, he hits another bump in the road that, as he put it, really took him out of his rhythm and put all of his plans on hold. But you never know what can happen when new unexpected rhythms emerge. Particularly as it relates to dealing with unfinished business.
0: Things are coming together. I was in the intern program and I was almost about to graduate and I was gonna be placed at the University of California and my mother informs me that my father is is dying. In fact he was in the hospital in a coma in New York. And he and I had not had a great relationship for a long time. He and my mother separated when I was twelve. The last year In the house was rough on everybody. It was abusive and just some other things that contradicted wildly with the way that I was brought up my expectation made me very angry. But I had a decision to make, and my decision was I was going to New York and I was gonna spend as much time with my father as I could. He was in a coma and there was no guarantee that he was actually gonna come out of it or live. But I had to go, so if, He could spiritually feel I was coming. That was good if he couldn't, that's okay. So I got there. Uh, He was in the hospital. Uh, I went through some things with the nursing staff and then I became like the nurse's aide. (laughs) So went on for a while and in a couple of weeks he came out of the coma and he was really surprised that I was there. Yeah, so I spent several months in New York and I was doing for him what he did for me. So I'm walking him around, taking care, cooking the whole room. So it was a great experience.
1: David's reconnection with his father was, in a sense, also a reconciliation with himself and his dreams. The time he spent as a caregiver for his dad allowed him to get clear about what he wanted to do with his own life. It also gave evidence that confronting pain could be healing and that you could come out on the other side of a fearful reckoning not only in one piece, but the better for it. Prior to coming back east with his dad, David had completed a few film projects at the University of California at San Diego, where he would eventually graduate. The experience convinced him that this was the direction he wanted to go. Film was both a way to tell his stories and a viable career. Unfortunately, it also had a catch-22. You couldn't get a job without a track record, which in film is called a reel. And you couldn't build a reel without a job. Fortunately, he caught a break.
0: I'm at a crossroads trying to figure things out. And I remembered the promise I made to myself. And I still feel very strongly about telling stories, telling my own story, helping people tell their own. I was working at night on security, so my days would be open, bought a literal uh, VHS camera package. So I was shooting things, practicing and editing and doing those things that I was learning how to do myself. And I I met a woman who was actually doing a documentary and somehow I talked her into letting me shoot it for her. And she was doing the Balmy Alley documentary in San Francisco. Balmy Alley is a place where the Mexican-American community had early on young people created a mural project that had to do with the heritage in this place called Balmy Alley. And the woman that I met was telling the story. So I I was shooting the floor and uh, doing some editing. So one thing led to another. Other people saw my work, started to hire me, and I got into a situation where I felt very confident about myself. And then I read that NBC, at the inside pool of the 1984 Democratic Convention that was going to be in San Francisco. So now I got a reel, and I'm feeling legit. So one thing led to another. They came out to do the site survey early on, and I had the interview, and I got hired.
1: Over the next decade, David was able to leverage his good fortune into a real career making documentary and commercial films. Despite this success, David's sense of obligation and unfinished business with the war persisted. Then, in the early 1990s, he recognized that his talent with a camera could also help him deal with his own incomplete story and contribute to his community. Opening himself up to this also helped him nudge the emotional logjam that had kept him from confronting the pain and confusion of his Vietnam experience.
0: So fast forward many years later, I'm in my career, I'm working, doing commercial things, I'm doing corporate things, and I I made another promise. I said, every two years, I'm going to do something for myself. I'm going to tell a different kind of story. I'm going to produce something that has to do with my sensibility and my community. And basically, that was how it happened. I went to my first military reunion. I started to get back into contact because I was finding some of the people that were out by that time that I knew when I'd gone to a reunion, I'd broken the ice. I was still tight with some of my partners. You know, I'd go to Washington State, up to Kamano Island. That's where my point was when I became a team leader. I'd go to Hawaii. That's where my first primary communicator lived and we'd hang out. And then I, I started my company in 97. We got the internet in my office. It was the embryonic neck. And one day, I just happened to find this entry that was addressed to one of my other friends who had been in a different team. His name was Eddie Delison. And in the subject, it was Somersale, the name of the team that Dennis was in. Dennis Christie is my friend who was killed. And it was from a D. Havronick. And Mike Havronic was one of the other kids on that chapter who were killed. So I knew what it was. I opened it up and read it. And Eddie Delizant had been going back to Vietnam for over 10 years. He'd learned to speak Vietnamese, and he was actually, not officially, but adopted by a Vietnamese family who was looking out for him and helping him. He had gone to Vietnam the last time, found the crash site. So they were initially... Everyone was KIA, bodies not recovered. So by the time that I'm talking about this discovery on the Internet, their status had been changed. So they were now missing in action, bodies never recovered, as opposed to killed in action, bodies not recovered. So Eddie had found the crash site, did a Buddhist Ceremony himself took some pictures, came back to the States, wrote an article. The article was published in one of the battalion reconnaissance newsletters. Don Havronik was living in Helena, Montana, and he had become best friends and on a mission with Craig Christie, Dennis's younger brother. Both of these were younger brothers. The Marines who were killed. Both of them joined the service after listening to all of the, the anguish that their parents had gone through for years while they were younger. They both intended to go to Vietnam to find their brothers. Now that they were missing in action, there was some hope.
1: Here's Don Hevronik reflecting on his own incomplete story with his brother.
4: My dream has always been to find my brother. I could never get it through my mind that he was just vanished off the face. I knew he had to be somewhere physically. He has to be somewhere. and I could never have that realization until I was afforded this opportunity to go visit my brother. Me and Craig Christie have always been very close together. Both of our brothers are together.
1: Part 3. Dong Ha. As David found out more about this prospective Vietnam sojourn, he began to think about his own unfinished business with his buddy Dennis. He thought about how the families had suffered, and despite the many years that had passed, their continuing need for closure... From the emails that had been forwarded to him, David gathered that the younger brothers, Don Haverneck and Craig Christie, had asked Eddie Dellison to join them in Vietnam and guide them to the area of the crash site. Learning this, he wondered if his on-the-ground experience and his filmmaking skills could contribute in some way, possibly to document the journey for the family members who couldn't be there. He decided to call Eddie Dellison to get a better sense of the unfolding plan. Eddie made it clear to David that their destination might be off-limits, particularly for visiting Americans. He said they needed to keep a very low profile if they had any chance of getting in and out unmolested. Bottom line, he did not think it would be prudent for David to join the group. David understood the delicacy of the situation and decided not to press his case.
0: I accept it. That I wasn't going to go after that initial phone call. And I went home that night and thought about it. and just didn't rest well with me. So I called him again. And he told me that where they were going was a, a sort of quagmire. They had to sneak in because the Vietnamese Communist Party controlled it. And they were having issues with our government about a lot of things. And one of the prizes that was dangled. It was recovering abiders that were in the DMZ. I remember. His point was that they wanted to be as low profile as possible, not to be discouraged or turned away. So I didn't argue. I spoke a little more. Then he said, I'm gonna let you speak to the brothers. So I called, told them who I was and what I wanted to do. And they just said, welcome aboard.
1: Here's Craig Christie describing how that trip finally came together in 2001.
3: Don and Eddie uh, put this trip together. Don would feed me information and request information and so forth and we would trade back and forth and next thing I know we had passports and we had tickets and we had everything we needed to go and it just it it just materialized. I, I really don't know how.
1: David, too, was surprised. He understood how extraordinary it was that Don and Craig had invited him on their very personal pilgrimage, a quest that was, in many ways, a leap of faith for everyone involved. He resolved to keep a low profile.
0: I took a small gear package. I'd never met either of them, so it was an interesting time. There. We were all just there, not sure what we were going to do or how we were going to do it. So my story actually changed then because I realized that I'm just helping getting it told. I thought I lost a friend and I was hurt by that for many years, but there's, there's no pain like these families. So what I decided I was gonna do is just listen. I was the fly on the wing and when I was spoken to, I would speak. So the story is a story. So my job is to help by facilitating whatever it is that they needed to do to get this story out. So the biggest challenge was them getting their heads wrapped around that. You know, he, the brothers are gone.
1: The group's first stop was Saigon, where they acclimatized for a few days and then flew north to Bai, where they stayed with Eddie's adopted family. Despite their initial concerns, the reception they received from both officials and their hosts was overwhelmingly positive. When they set out for the DMZ, though, things became a bit more intense.
0: When we finally departed and went up to the DMZ, you know, it was a little more challenging. We had to stay in a single place that everyone has to check in, all the Americans. And you stay there, you sort of looked over and watched, and they assigned a, an escort for us, who was always with us. If we wanted to go into DMZ and any place that wasn't authorized, except the town of Dong Ha. But it all worked out. We found the crash site. Eddie knew where it was. We accessed it the first day. We actually went out. And that was a bit of a surprise. We thought we were going to have a lot more resistance. But we got there. And we decided we were going to go back the next day and go down into the crash site. So I had a camera with me all of the time, so, you know, it was just a matter of going down, letting the brothers understand that this was their final resting place.
1: As it is shown in the film, this moment at the Sail 1 crash site is very intense. Don and Craig are on their knees in a grass-filled depression at the base of a gentle slope. There's no talking, just wow. the sound of bar knives tearing into the hard ginger-colored earth. It's tough going, but they managed to create a two-foot square about six inches deep where they nestle a plaque and two bottles of liquor, one on each side. Don looks at Craig, who nods, In short order, the small memorial is covered over with dirt. After a few prayers and a short ceremony, the brothers sit in silence, reconciling with the finality that their brothers were gone. As they get ready to leave, Don rips a handful of the waist-high elephant grass surrounding them and hands it to Craig, who stuffs it into a plastic bag and places it into a backpack, resting on the ground. Part 4, Coming to Terms. For Craig Christie and Don Hevronick, their pilgrimage to their brother's final resting place seemed to bring some clarity to the murky war story they had lived for most of their lives. Don's word for it is peace.
4: Craters are all around the hills around me and the fighting holes in front of me. It felt like, almost that I was at peace, almost. Strange, man. It's like I I can understand why my brother didn't get out of this place. Because of what, the scars that are still visible today but yet there are different type of scars and he's just a part of that scar and it's like it was all of our scar to me it felt just them craters the explosion all the explosions of my life and all the stupid stuff I've done and and the world stuff and the It's kind of like it's, it made it all make sense to me. That makes any sense.
3: One of the things uh, that was resolved from uh, our trip over there is, uh, he's not M-I-A, he's K-I-A (laughs) by, by not accepting uh, the k i a issue, then there's always false hope p o w uh maybe he just decided to stay and uh you know that 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 thought crossed my mind. That uh, somehow he had escaped or had lived. And so I guess, I guess initially that we were going to go and uh, find him somewhere alive. And that that trip put everything in pop, proper perspective with going to the crash site, seeing the bomb craters, and getting a, a first-hand look. It all made sense. It all came together.
1: It's over. Craig Christie's imagined scene of his brother's reemergence speaks volumes about the invisible wounds of war. Sadly, when the Defense Department briefly reclassified the fate of these soldiers from KIA to MIA, it both reignited the family's pain and increased their need for closure, which they ultimately recognized was not going to come in an official communique. Craig and Don had gone to Vietnam to pull the curtains on a 30-year nightmare. Despite the sense of peace they had felt in Vietnam, they both knew that the healing would be slow going, particularly for the families back home. David felt the family's reflections would be important for the summer sales story, but he also knew that would take time, and he would have to be patient.
0: When I saw what was happening, got to really understand... I respected something that I couldn't ever have grasped. So when we initially came back to the state, they had a lot of processing to do. So it took a couple of years before they were actually ready to speak again. And in that interim, one had a serious stroke. The other's whole life fell apart. You know, lost his wife, all because everything had shifted for them. They weren't who they were before. They were completely changed. In Don's case, he had to come back and, and tell his mother who had gone through the initial trauma, still sitting there waiting to hear the update.
5: Now you think your children are yours, but they're really not. Because anything could happen to any one of them. But I just thought they were my babies, and I loved them so much. This war in Iraq just upsets me so bad. When I saw on that, oh, 48 hours the other night, there's 2,100 wounded have come back from Iraq already. One had his legs cut off here. And they, some of them were burnt so bad, it was just so cruel. And I thought, oh. And yet I thought, if Michael were here, I would rather have him that way than not at all. We don't have a choice.
1: Many believe that when the guns fall silent, the war has ended. And then the damage, the loss, the stories of trauma and devastation become a piece of history. It's entirely understandable. War is a horrible thing. And who wants to be reminded over and over of horrible things. and The people not directly involved want to move on. But David and Don and Craig and Eddie and the loved ones left behind on both sides of the DMZ know that this is a terribly false understanding of war and its act. What they know is that the story of each assault, each bombing raid, each recon mission, each burning village, each wounded soldier, each returning veteran, each death of a son, a daughter, a brother, a mother, a child, ripples forward inexorably. What they know is that the 20-year history of America's war in Vietnam did not end with the lowering of the American flag and an inglorious escape from the U.S. Embassy in Saigon on April 30, 1975. What they know is that these events were just the beginning of a much longer story that has never been adequately told. Hopefully, David's film about these young men fighting a war and their families trying to make sense of what happened in that war is one small step in the direction of changing that narrative.
0: I think what really has been part of my goal and and my reasoning was that I was always affected by stories. I was told stories in ways that were supposed to be instructive. I was told stories that were just entertaining. I was told stories that had a historical meaning. You know, we were brought up with the mythology and ethos of armed conflict, defending this, conquering that. There are literally thousands of stories of those early people who were involved that we've disregarded. Maybe if we read them and understood them or put them in proper perspective, not this hero worship, we'd have a different outcome. But we haven't learned that lesson.
1: Sadly, as David Moraney has observed, the story we've just heard seems to be a fixture of the human condition, an enduring narrative whose ripples never cease, ripples evidenced by these two postscripts. In September of 2002, the families of Michael Haverneck and John Foley, another of the SummerSale One team members, received their dog tags in the mail from a missionary who purchased them in Vietnam. In September of 2005, the remains of Jim Mosier and Jim Widner, two other SummerSale One team members, were repatriated by the Vietnamese government and subsequently returned to their families. Both were laid to rest with honors. We'd like to express our deep thanks to David Moraney for his help on this episode, and by extension, thanks to the Summer Sale One families, who generously shared their stories for David's documentary. Links to this documentary can be found in our show notes. Change the Story, Change the World is a production of the Center for the Study of Art and Community, Our work through this podcast and our publications is to provide a chronicle of art and community transformation for others to be inspired and learn from. To do this, we need your help. So to all you listeners, thanks again for your eager ears and a shout out and a special thanks to Judy Munson for her genius musical contributions and Andre Nebbe for his text-editing prowess. For this episode of Change the Story, Change the World, our 50th, by the way, this is Bill Cleveland saying, Stay well, do good, and spread the good word.